Um, today we're going to be talking about love, um, which I know this is church and it's something that we uh, talk about a lot. Um, but I am personally like a total sucker for love, for like romantic love, for the mushy kind of love. I pretend to be this like hyper-rational uh, tough guy, but um, truth be told, I'm like a romance junkie. Uh, if Esther and I are watching romantic comedies, like she's way more likely to be the one to go, oh my God, are you crying? And I'm like, I'm not crying, you're crying. You know, that kind of thing. So um, that's me. I'm the, I'm the sap. But uh, I even love like the ancient love stories, you know, like the Trojan War that Paris and Helen found, fell so deeply in love that, you know, they ran away together and that Menelaus, you know, when most guys would just write a country song to deal with their breakup, you know, he like attacks an entire nation. Um, love that stuff. Cleopatra and Anthony, you know, that Anthony falls so deeply in love with Cleopatra that he not only kind of thumbs his nose at Octavius, but goes to war against him. And even when he's getting his butt kicked, they decide to commit suicide together rather than be separated. You know, that, that crazy stuff. Dante and Beatrice, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, John, Ab- John and Abigail Adams. We'll read their story. It's amazing. Jacob and Rachel and sometimes Leah. And uh, don't even get me started on Jim and Pam, but uh, some of you, some of you. Who doesn't enjoy a great love story? I'm personally a sucker. In fact, if ever Esther like really wants to embarrass me, she's got this little box hidden somewhere in the house and she breaks out like all the poetry and stuff I wrote her when we were dating. <laughs> oh man, it was so cheesy. Like I can't even hardly read it today. It's like... It literally makes my skin crawl, but but uh, but she loves to bring it out and embarrass me every once in a while. And I still write her poetry every once in a while. But love is such a constant feature, both in our society and our history, and definitely in the church that uh, we talk about it so much that sometimes we kind of forget that it's there. It's just kind of this steady, constant thing, kind of like our nose. Like how many of you, when you when you remember a scene or, or if you're an artist, when you paint or draw a scene, do you, do you leave the blurry part out of the corner where your nose goes? Like, if you look at it, it's totally there. It's always in your vision, but it's such a constant that most of us don't even notice that we have it. Sometimes love can be that way. <clears throat> I think love is, is especially in the Christian experience, such a, uh, such a common factor that sometimes we forget exactly what it is. And uh, and especially the fact that it was the root of everything Jesus both did and expects his disciples to do. We take it for granted. So I think what we're going to talk about today is that kind of love. Because love, love is, is messy. In fact, we get uh, so mixed up sometimes uh, about what it is that, that it can get... Uh, it can, it can get, even get out of control. Uh, we're in week two of a series called Designed for Worship. And last week we talked about our original design um, that God created us and intends to return us to this place of worship. We identified worship as a posture or an alignment um, whereby we see ourselves as under God, submissive to God. Uh, not necessarily what we think of as worship as singing and and, uh, and playing music, but a posture of the heart whereby we see ourselves in our pop, proper place. Both the Old Testament and New Testament, the word for worship actually means to bow down, um, to, to prostrate yourself. Um, 
And uh, so it's not just singing, it's, it's, it, although it includes singing, it's taking our proper place in the universe on top of the created order, but firmly under and submissive to our creator. Well, that was very cerebral. That was very intellectual. If, if you like your, uh, if we're talking about wiring and kind of our default code that God has wired into our souls, if you're rational and you like to keep your information in the purely kind of theological and theoretical um, then last week was definitely for you. Um, this week we're actually going to get messier. We're going to uh, step into the emotional arena. And if you know anything about emotions or have ever dealt with deep emotions, you know um, they don't come in clean packages. They, don't, they get all mixed and jumbled up. Emotions um, are kind of like a, a salad. Like we, we talk about them in their individual ingredients. You know, you throw in a little anger and a little love and a little joy and... And, uh, and when you're eating it, every now and then your fork might grab an individual one. But usually you get this mixed up, jumbled up mess all at the same time. And if that metaphor doesn't work, if you're not tracking with me, just think of it this way. How angry have you ever gotten at someone you truly and deeply love? Like the, it, it seems like the people that you care the most about, that you would literally die for, are the people that push you closest to murder like no one else if it's a stranger and they make you truly angry you know you yell at them you share some sign language and then it's over it's like no more but it's the people that we deeply love where we mix up that love and that anger and the and the 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 passion and the frustration and we jumble all that together that brings out the deep and real life-changing relationships where we finally learn to do the truly heroic things like stay and change and forgive and serve. Well, today's story is about this audacious act of worship that um, some people like to look at and break down kind of rationally, uh, but if they do, they can kind of miss what's going on. So we're going we're gonna to work through this story and try to kind of find ourselves there and look at the tensions and the kind of passions that are flowing around this room today. Because um, Jesus actually unpacks this moment for us, which is kind of cool. We kind of have his guidance um, as we look at it. And we get to see this jumbled up uh, batch of emotions that are kind of tangled up in this frozen moment of worship. So we're going to start with the passage, and it reads like this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt before him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisees, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts, Simon He said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 to another. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust off my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who's this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, this is the word of the Lord. So let's start with a little background. Um, It seems in this chapter that Jesus is in the town of Nine, um, N-A-I-N, Nine, uh, which is in Galilee, kind of the northern portion of Israel. So he's kind of up close to his hometown. He's not down in Judah, which is where Jerusalem and all the big stuff happens, but he's up in the north in, uh, in Galilee. And, but he's not in his hometown of Nazareth. He's actually south of Nazareth. So this is not, Jesus is an outsider in this story. He's not um, from this town. He's kind of an itinerant traveling preacher at this point, and, and, uh, and he's kind of new to nine. Um, in the story before, uh, actually two stories ahead, he was in Capernaum, and now he's moved into this new town. He's actually just kind of gone on a long dissertation about uh, John the Baptist, and, and in that he kind of calls out one of the, the or not one of, but kind of calls out the Pharisees and their treatment of John. And so one of them decides to deal with this situation by inviting Jesus to dinner. They actually ask him to come to dinner, to, most likely to find out what this guy was all about. And into this uh, scene that's already tense because just that day, Jesus has been kind of bashing these guys. Um, so this is not a relaxed, casual dinner. This is already a little tense. In walks this woman um, who has a reputation um, and kind of dives into this really extravagant act of worship. She literally bows down. Remember, our definition for worship is to bow down. And she washes Jesus' feet with her tears. And not only that, she lets down her hair to wash his feet. And this is actually a a really, really scandalous move. In that culture at that time, a woman was not allowed to leave her house with her hair showing. She had to wear a head covering at all times. The Talmud, which is kind of the the Jewish rule book that they made off of the Old Testament, um, it says that especially a married woman, if she leaves her house with her hair uncovered, um, her husband can divorce her on the spot. Like some, some rabbis even suggested putting her to death. Like that's how serious this kind of, this hair thing was. You just didn't leave with your hair showing. It was just not a thing that was done. And so for this woman to come into this room and not only like let her hair down and reveal it, but to wash Jesus' feet with it um, is this kind of, it would have been hard for the people in the room to even watch this, um, let alone condone it. And so, um, so in a room that is already tense, you know, you've got Jesus and the Pharisees in the same place trying to figure each other out. In walks this woman and just like cranks up the uncomfortable meter about a thousand degrees, like really makes things awkward. And I, I, I was trying to come up with a way of describing what this might look like. And honestly, I can't even come up with a parallel that's, that's acceptable for Sunday mornings. <laughs> like I think it would be too... To graph it. So right off the bat, we have this incredible tension in this moment. And so uh, just before dinner, Jesus 
yells at the Pharisees. They invite him over. You've got that weirdness. We just had an argument, and now we're sitting down to dinner together. And now you've got this woman. So things are awkward. And Jesus, uh, or, and to make it worse, so not only do you have, you know, the tension that already existed, this woman's weird act, but she also comes in with a reputation. It says the Pharisee who had invited him saw this and said to himself, this man, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. So you, you also have that element. So not only is she doing something inappropriate, she's an inappropriate person. She's a sinner. So when Jesus speaks, and we know that she, it says she's from the town. So Jesus wouldn't already know her necessarily. He's, uh, he's kind of new to nine, and, and she's from there. So as we dive into the story, this is not just sterile black words on a white page. This is a highly charged moment. Frankly, really uncomfortable moment. So Jesus' kind of coolness in this story stands in contrast to a bunch of people that are not at all cool. Like, so you've got to feel that first. And so as we dive in and read the story, remember that. So this woman begins to worship in this kind of really extravagant way. The tension in the room is reaching a fever pitch. Jesus kind of speaks in. People are whispering. They're, they're, things are really awkward and uncomfortable. He says, Simon. So he just kind of broke in an awkward silence with this moment. Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 to another, but neither could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? For just a second, let's leave this really awkward room and, uh, and analyze this story just a little bit because we have a tendency to m- misread this because we read it with kind of our modern financial system in mind. We, we picture this like a credit card company, right? Credit card company, one guy owes, owes credit card company $50,000. The other one owes $500. And the credit card company happens to call them both up and go, hey, we're erasing your debt. You're free. In other words, we tend to read this as though this is a fairy tale that would never really happen, right? That, that some debtor would just go, you know what? Slate is clean. You're free to go. But in Jesus' day, this scenario actually happened all the time. This, this story he tells is not a made-up fairy tale kind of story. It was actually a very normal story. This is a description of first century. The English word they use is slavery in a lot of translations, but it's more indentured servitude. We didn't, uh, when the Bible talks about slavery, it was never race-based, lifelong slavery like we've known in, in the more modern eras. Um, it was kind of an indentured servitude whereby uh, somebody would owe a huge debt or maybe even be in debtor's prison and, uh, and, and somebody wealthy would come along and pay off that debt or, or buy them out of, of debtor's prison. And usually it was kind of set up like a loan. Like, you know, you would kind of, but both sides kind of knew that the loan would never be repaid. That wasn't really the purpose of what was going on here. Usually, uh, the the rich person would forgive the debt, sort of, and and they would become this person's benefactor. 
Like when, when someone would come along and do a huge favor for you, and it was usually somebody wealthy, uh, or they would, you know, pay your debt, or they would, they would help you out of a bad situation. They became your benefactor, and you became their client. So when the loan was due, the benefactor, um, you know, could call it in and send you back to debtor's prison, but that didn't really help them. Uh, 99% of the time, the benefactor would forgive the debt, um, and that was what would kind of make them the benefactor. And this, this forgiveness, this payment, was called a charis. Um, it, was, it was what they used. They would, they would grant you a charis and wipe your debt clean. And, in, uh, and that's the Greek word for it, a charis. Um, and now you would assume, we would assume, you know, if the credit card company called and said, hey, your debt is wiped away, we would split and never talk to that credit company again, right? We would, and so that's how we read this story, like, awesome, I'm totally free. I will never use that credit card again. I'm done. That's not the way it worked back then. What happened was when, when a benefactor came and granted you a charis, you were expected to return with a pistis. You would, you would, you would grant pistis for charis um, in the Greek. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it kind of became this benefactor-client relationship from then on, sort of. Uh, and this strange financial exchange that was very common in that day um, is the metaphor that Paul grabs onto to describe our relationship with Christ. And we've become very familiar with it because the Greek word charis is translated in English as grace, as a grace gift, an unmerited gift called grace. And pistis is the English word for faith or faithfulness. And so the benefactor would come and offer a grace and the client was expected to return with pistis, with faith or faithfulness. And Paul saw this and he saw this amazing metaphor that, that looks so much like the way our relationship with Jesus works, whereby Jesus comes and pays this debt that we had or, or wipes our slate clean and, and in return asks for nothing but our pistas, our faith in return. And so Paul grabs onto this and most of his language is, is wrapped around this well-known financial system of grace and faith. And let's take that now and, and reread. Now that we kind of know the, 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 the financial system of the time, let's, let's read this again. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 to the other. But neither of them could re- repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. So this is a common story. No one in the room would be surprised by this story. This doesn't sound to them like a fairy tale. There was some debate in, in Israel as to whether or not this system, you know, should apply based on Torah, you know, because the, the Old Testament uh, wasn't in favor of kind of leveraging debt against people. And so there was some debate. This was definitely like a Roman system, and Israel is a Roman colony at this time. And so this is definitely kind of a Roman financial system, and there was some debate in Israel to, as to whether or not it was good. But a lot of Jews used it, and a... And a and, uh, and so it, was, it wouldn't have shocked anybody in a, in a kind of a worldly, crass kind of way. You were expected to do this. Like how else would you, would you get your people to stay faithful if you weren't offering them charis? If you weren't offering them gifts, you would not receive faithfulness in return. So this, it was kind of an expected way that the rich people would kind of create their people. Was they would, they would, you, you're expected. It is a relationship. You're expected to do good things for them that they can't do for themselves. And in return, you know, when you need something, they're there for you. When you, when you, you know, if, if someone's a butcher, you know, and you've they've gotten a bunch of debt and you pay their debt, well, you're going to expect 
their faithfulness to you. If you have a big party, they're going to drop everything and, and, and work for you because they're your people now. And, it, and, it, and this relationship was, was well known. This is a very common story. So nobody's shocked in the room by Jesus' story. It's, it's not a weird fairy tale, make believe kind of thing. The shocking part is the question, who do you suppose loved him more after that? So here's where the hearers probably start to feel that tickle you get on the back of your neck when someone's about to drop a bomb on you and you can feel it coming, but you don't know where it's going to come from yet. You, you know something. Anybody here ever read, read Ted Decker? Anybody? Yeah, Ted Decker is a Christian author and he writes mostly in allegory. And so he tells this amazing story that has some biblical allegory built into it. And there's the funnest part of reading Decker is you never know when the allegory is going to drop. Every single time I've read one of his books, I've been like, I guess he just wrote a book this time. There's no allegory in it. Like this is just a plain old book. And then all of a sudden the allegory drops and you're like, oh, that's what I picture here. Like, like everybody knows something's coming. Jesus is totally setting them up, but they don't know where it's coming from yet. Anyway, that's the atmosphere of the room right now. Everybody knows they're being set up um, by this kind of totally normal financial story. If a benefactor offers a large caris to one client, a small caris to another client, which client is likely to give more pistis, more faithfulness? At this point, the conversation sounds more like, Simon, I've got a question for you. Do you, do you think it's, you make more money in a long-term um, kind of safe mutual fund or playing, you know, gambling with day trading? Which do you think makes more money? Like it, it sounds like a totally normal financial question, and everybody in the room is like, what are you doing? Like, I can, I can feel something coming. You're asking me an everyday question, and in a situation that's not an everyday situation, like <laughs> we've got this ridiculously, like, tense room you got a woman at your feet bawling, and you're asking me about the stock market. What is happening right now in this room? So that's kind of the atmosphere of the room. Until Jesus says this. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I first came in, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Jesus takes the completely normal financial scenario that had an obvious answer, the more charis, the more pistis. And he brings it into the room. And the parallels kind of invite this uh, messy situation. So before we get into kind of the details of the passage, let's look at some of the connections Jesus draws. This extravagant act of worship is connected to her love or faithfulness which is connected to the amount of grace that she's able to perceive, which we can assume by extension is connected to the depth of the shame that she lives with on a regular basis. A lot more is going on than just an act of worship. You have this connection of, of 
feelings and experiences. And, and Jesus explains what's happening, which feels to me a lot like arguing with my wife. You know, where I think we're arguing about this, and then it changes on me. And then when I get recentered and I figure out we're now talking about this, it changes again. Everything's connected. I'll pay for that one later. So Jesus, <laughs> Jesus in just a few lines makes this masterful connection from worship to love to grace to shame. And the reason that I really highlight all this today is because it unveils kind of the emotional side of worship. Last week we looked at worship from the angle of design. This very cerebral approach to worship that we're just made for it. But here in the middle of the realities from Genesis and Revelation that we talked about last week, the, the reality that we were created to worship and that we will one day be returned to that state of worship, we live in the middle, in the messy middle. And in that messy place, worship is so much more than a, than a duty or a cognitive alignment that we put ourselves into Worship is deeply emotional. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach Simon. Because the Pharisees knew duty. No one, no one knew responsibility better. If worship were only a responsibility that God gave humans, and it's our job to worship him, the Pharisees nailed that. Nobody worshiped better from that aspect than the Pharisees did. Simon knows this, and, and the second he sees this woman come in, he also knows that she has missed it. She's missed the, the duty aspect of worship, the responsibility to align ourselves under God. He knows this woman, and he knows she has missed it. She's not a worshiper by his definition. And what Jesus does is he kind of blasts right through all that responsibility to, to real worship. And he dives into the messy world of shame and brokenness and rescue and redemption and gratitude and unworthiness and grace and faith and how it all gets tangled up. And the only way we can find to express all of that is worship. See, to Simon, worship was structured and orderly and neat and tidy to this woman, worship is an explosion of emotion that she didn't even have to try to remember to do. It, it's something she had no hopes of holding back. And here's the thing. That kind of emotion makes a mess of things. But it wasn't new ground to Jesus. He had the habit of, of, of making a mess of things, of turning things upside down. To everyone else in the room that is thinking about worship, this is a tectonic shift of paradigms. Everything is moving. Now let's see if we can unpack that just a little bit. The moment the woman, the, I'm gonna, the church, church tradition calls her Mary Magdalene. Um, there's another Mary that lived down in Bethany, and we know that this woman was from Nain. Um, and so uh, church tradition calls her Mary. Uh, there's some debate on that, but just for the sake of not having to call her the woman, I'm gonna, we're going to call her Mary because it's making me uncomfortable just to call her the woman. But um, the second Mary enters the room, Simon's eyes are, are on her, fixed on her. And she is a known quantity, right? 
Simon's trying to figure Jesus out. That's the whole reason he invited him to dinner. But Mary, he knows. She's a woman of ill repute, and that is unquestionable. So watch what Simon does. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he's trying to figure, he doesn't know who Jesus is yet, but if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. So Simon starts with what he knows to be true, that Mary is a sinner, and he moves from there to a conclusion about Jesus. So he moves from the woman to Jesus. She's a sinner, this I know, so Jesus must not be what, what he seems to think he is. Because a prophet would know. So Simon moves from what he knows to be true and uses that to find answers to what he doesn't yet know. And if this were high school math, that would be a great way to do it. Start with what you know. This is every word problem you've ever you know, struggled with in math. You start with what you know and you move toward what you don't know. Perfect approach. But Simon does not have all the facts. Simon doesn't realize that Jesus does in fact have the right and the ability to forgive sins. That's an unknown quantity that is super important. And this is the, the, the most important piece of information. And before we judge Simon too severely, um, I think we do the same thing. When you meet somebody and their life is a total mess, maybe they don't sleep with the person you think they should sleep with or they drink more than you think they should or maybe they vote differently than you or maybe they use words that you were taught not to use or maybe they do stuff that doesn't even fall in anything debatably gray area. Maybe they are an unquestionable sinner. And imagine that person says to you, that they believe in Jesus or they, or they go to church. Be honest with yourself. Is your very first instinct to assume that the overwhelming, reckless love of Jesus reaches far enough to fully accept even this person? Or, or is your first instinct, like Simon, to assume that they must have some bad theology? Like, what do you mean when you say Jesus? Because... Because I know you're a sinner. <laughs> when someone says, thank you, Jesus, is your first instinct to go, Ex- explain to me what you mean by that. Because I don't think you could mean what I mean when you say Jesus. I'm guilty of that at times. And I know what you're thinking. If they truly knew Jesus, they would change. That's usually what we hide behind. But please remember that Mary's worship in this story looks nothing like what worship is supposed to look like. Jewish women weren't even allowed to leave their house with their hair exposed, let alone letting it all the way down in a room full of men, getting it all oily and rubbing Jesus' feet with it. Like I say, I don't want to make it weird, but this would have been an incredibly sensual image to this to this room. But what Jesus sees is this clumsy and maybe even inappropriate act is, is Mary's worship. He sees this person pouring herself out in worship. Her heart is bursting with love for Jesus. 
because of the unbearable weight of sin that's been lifted from her soul. And Simon can't see any of that. He knows who she is. And that was enough for him to size up the whole situation. But what happens if Simon starts with the known quantity of who Jesus is? Then everything changes, right? The Gospels are full of stories of Jesus touching unclean people and, and unclean people sneaking up and touching Jesus. And, and what happens overturns 13 to 1400 years of Jewish tradition. Since the days of Moses, everybody knew that when an unclean thing touches a clean thing, the unclean thing makes the clean thing unclean. Most of the Old Testament is about this. If someone is unclean and you bump into them, you are now unclean and have to leave the camp until evening when you can be kind of proven clean. It, it, was, it was a well-known situation. Clean things don't make unclean things clean in the Jewish understanding of things. An unclean thing always makes a clean thing unclean. And then Jesus comes and touches lepers. In 1,400 years of tradition gets turned on its head because suddenly the clean thing is making the unclean thing clean. That had never been done. If Jesus touched a leper, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to catch leprosy, but he would be expected to leave the camp, be excluded from any religious rituals until he can be confirmed clean again. So what happens if Jesus and or Simon invites Jesus to dinner with this understanding. If Simon knows that Jesus has the ability to make an unclean thing clean, what if he starts with that as what he knows to be true? Simon's only conclusion would have to be that Mary has been made clean. So Simon misses like I believe we often do, the beauty of, of praising God for the reach of His grace. But unfortunately, this is the least of his mistakes that night because Simon's real error was his assumption of who he was. See, not only did Simon know that Mary was a sinner, but Mary knew that Mary was a sinner. Everything Mary does comes from this knowledge. Jesus even points this out. Her extravagant worship is rooted in her great love, and her great love is rooted in her deep brokenness. Simon assumes that, uh, that Simon is not a sinner. And of course, this marriage uh, knowledge, like it does for Mary, it drives his behavior from that point on, his treatment of Jesus. He doesn't offer the standard courtesies, let alone extravagant worship. Just as Mary is soaring, as the weight of sin is lifted from her heart, Simon is solidly rooted to the ground by the weight of his own righteousness and responsibility. And at the end of the exchange, Jesus says this, Your sins are forgiven to Mary. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith, your pistis saved you. Go in peace. 
The benefactor offers caress. Your sins are forgiven. And the client gives faith, pistis, in return. And it happens in the midst of this clumsy, emotional act of worship. So how do we respond to this? I pick on Simon a lot in this passage. But I really do think it's kind of unfortunate that the gospel writers take such a, uh, an antagonistic approach to Simon. Because if I'm honest, it's super easy for me to identify with Simon. In fact, I would, I would venture to say that most of us probably have every bit as much Simon as we do Mary. And because of the way we're conditioned by literature to always kind of side with and, and identify with the protagonist in any story, I think we can easily miss how much we actually align with the bad guy. We have a tendency to just assume I'm on the good guy's side. It's how we read all literature. I'm The good guy always wins, right? Because of that, we can miss that we are also Simon. The unique thing about this morning's passage is that every single one of us can be both. We can totally play the role of Mary. We can totally play the role of Simon. In fact, the saddest part of the story is that Simon and Mary are the same. They're both in the exact same boat, and the only difference is their perception. Jesus saw two people praying one day, and and he, and he stopped his disciples, and when you read it, you can kind of hear the excitement in his voice. They were walking, and he kind of goes, hey, stop, 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 look at this, look at this. There's two people praying. One is like Simon, and he's going, thank you, God, that you didn't make me a sinner. Thank you, God, that I'm a decent person. And right next to him was somebody who couldn't even lift his head up, couldn't even pick his head up, and he just beats his chest and says, God, please forgive me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, that guy right there gets it. He's the one that goes home justified today. It's perception. The guy that was like Mary, the guy that that saw himself broken, was redeemed. We talked last week about how worship is an alignment where we see ourselves in our proper place. Well, look at Simon. He, he sees himself on Jesus' level, right? Who is this man that he can forgive sins? That's what it looks like to be out of alignment. Who is this man that can do that? And we do it too. Who is this man that would forgive a gay guy and not even make him straight? Who is this man that he would love and fellowship with somebody from from the wrong side of the political aisle? Who is this man that he would touch the heart of someone whom I have not yet forgiven? And there she is with her hands up in worship and pretending like she knows God. Who is Jesus to forgive a person like that? It's really easy to be Simon. And if we start with the known quantity of this is a sinner and we go backwards, we cannot help but make that reflect on Jesus. We don't think we're doing it. But ultimately we're going, Jesus is not loving enough for this person. Jesus' grace does not stretch this far. 
But if we start with who Jesus is, His amazing love, His incredible grace, the whole direction changes. Everything changes. In this story, we can be both Simon and Mary. They're both sinners. That much is clear. And the thing that really separates them is worship. It's worship that's born out of a deep self-awareness and an even deeper awareness of the depths of Jesus' love. I don't pick on sins, specific sins, very often when I preach. And it's not because I don't think sin is serious. We don't welcome everybody here, no matter how big of a mess their life is, because we don't think how you live matters. It definitely matters. We definitely are concerned. I tend not to pick on specific sins because I feel like when we do that, we have this tendency to kind of hone in on the hot button ones that really bug us. And most of us leave feeling like, I've got a little work to do, but for the most part, I'm doing all right. And I think that is a dangerous misconception, maybe the most dangerous lie we can believe. Sin is dark and it's dangerous, and it's why our world is broken. It's why Facebook is so hateful. It's why people do terrible, mean things to each other. Sin is vile and disgusting, and any discussion about sin that doesn't end in every single one of us, every single one of us at the foot of the cross, thanking God for his grace, because we know deep in our guts we could not stand before him without it. Any sin that does not put us all in that place is too small of a discussion of sin. The gospel demands that we understand that we're broken. And that his love is so big, it embraces us anyway. Timothy Keller says it like this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we could have ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Let me read that one more time. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. He has this habit that I absolutely love. He's you know, popular enough that people, he's under the microscope. And people will come to him every time there's a little bit of a scandal and go, hey, I heard you, blah, blah, blah. And his answer is always, oh, you don't know the half of it. I'm way worse than that. That's the cry of Mary's heart in this passage. Simon would never get that. Simon would never understand that statement. You are broken, and Jesus loves you anyway. There are people who know they're broken, but they just don't believe Jesus is loving enough to forgive them. There are also people who know Jesus' love, but they just don't really feel like they're that broken. But the gospel is this weird, counterintuitive thing that doesn't always make sense to our mind. That we're supposed to fully believe that we are completely and utterly unworthy. We are filthy and broken and sinful. And at the same time, we are honored and loved and lavished with acceptance and unconditional grace. We're simultaneously nothing and everything, and, and that is the gospel. 
And the very best way to cope with all of that confusion and seeming contradiction of, of brokenness and grace and the way it gets all sealed up is through worship. We stop trying to understand it. We just pour ourselves into worship. This obviously goes much deeper than just singing in, in church and, and playing worship music on a car, but it certainly includes that. If you have a, a piece of you that just feels thrilled to get into the presence of God and sing your gratitude, then you're probably experiencing the gospel. And if, if you're not... If there's a party that's just like, I'm not really that into worship. It's not really my thing. I would, I would invite you to do some soul work. I'm not saying you've got to love singing, you've got to love church music, but if, if you don't have that piece of you that just feels like you just, man, would just love to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus, then I, then I invite you to, to go inside. Who are you judging? What? What sins are you maybe hiding or trying to justify? Invite God in with his flashlight to look in the corners. God, what is it that I'm not feeling this deep desire and passion to, to worship you? Maybe send, spend some time with people like Mary. People who don't know how to act Christian yet. All they know is they love Jesus. And maybe they're a mess. Maybe it's... Maybe everything in you wants to go, dude, that is not how we do things. You need to put some pants on. I don't know, but but if there's not a Mary in your soul that just relishes the opportunity to thank Jesus for his grace, then I, then I, then I would say go to the Holy Spirit and say, search my heart. Show me what's off. I started this morning by talking about love stories. And this slide is the greatest love story that's ever been told. I'm convinced that this is why we love love stories. That we we have this hole in our heart that's crying out for this and it's, it's why we attach to a great love story. Really good human love is just a, a reflection of this. To be both fully known and, and fully loved. To be fully known and not fully loved is our greatest fear. And to be loved when we're not fully known is just sentimentality. We can see right through that. But to be fully known even in our brokenness, even in our rottenness, and, and fully loved at the same time is the cry of every heart. It's why we, it's why we love love stories. This is what we're seeking. This is what our heart is crying for. So here's what I want to close. We've been closing lately by kind of praying together. We're going to keep doing that through this series. So I want to take a moment of silence, just a chance to look inside for a second. And then I want to pray the prayer of contrition together that we 
pray the four prayers of the people every week. I want to say it out loud together. And then we're going to gather around the table and, and sing one last song together. And I invite you to take that whole mess of confusion, of grace and faith and failure and love and, and maybe just pour it into this moment. Even if it's just sitting quietly and, or if it's singing at the top of your lungs or maybe don't run up and down the aisle. That makes me uncomfortable. But no. Or maybe just take a moment of worship and just, just do some business with God. So let's take a moment of silent contemplation and confession. with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name.